Well, Genesis House, why don't you stand and read the word with me? We're going to begin in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But yet he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come to you with uh, open hearts and minds to receive your truth. Sometimes your word is really easy to understand and the principles are clear. Sometimes it takes a lot of digging and we have to try to put ourselves back in the original context in which things are written and work our way, work our way backwards to go forwards. Whatever the case may be with the way you speak to us today, I pray that you'd make this, this message clear and that we have a fruitful time of discussion where we learn to apply your scriptures. Uh, Lord, we look forward to our time as you strengthen us in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So before we get right into verse 3, let me remind you by way of a couple of points of introduction where we're at. You remember over the last few weeks that uh, we've seen Paul give a list of correctives uh, in his letter to Timothy to various groups within the church. He, uh, we've seen him address widows, we've seen him address elders, uh, and the last time we gathered, we looked at slaves, or in our context, Christian employees. Here in our passage today, he returns once again, again to the inept eldership, the false teachers in Ephesus. And what's unique about them, unlike the widows and slaves who Paul only had to address once in his letter, this is the third time false teachers are addressed in, in Ephesus. First, we see one in chapter 1, in verses 3 to 7. We see it again in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and here again in verses 3 through 10. Now the reason he addresses them three times, I believe, is because of the spiritual toll they've taken on the church there. They had let the church into disrepute and brought the, gospel into, um, brought the gospel's message into um, a repudiation, and the church community was split, and everything was going all nuts in, in Ephesus. And so we can see the results of them there. For example, we see that there's envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicions and friction between men. So their toll had been really heavy on the church there. And so Paul wanted rid of them. He needed them out so that healthy spiritual leadership could come in. But what's significant to remember also is where these men originated from. See, unlike the situation in the Galatian church, for example, where the false teachers from the, were from the outside, these teachers were homegrown. They are from inside the community. And Paul had mentioned that this was going to happen to them. Remember the, the passage in Acts? He said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit had made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not spurn the flock, and from amongst your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw, any, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. And so here they were, just like Paul had predicted. But here's why this is important. If that happened to the church in Ephesus, homegrown elders have started off spiritually strong, solid biblical teachers who were sold out for the Lord. And now they were savage wolves. 
If that can happen to them, it can be happen to us. That means myself, people like Roger and Stuart and Jeff and who are training for eldership and stuff like that, that we're not exempt from this temptation, from this possibility of falling away. So we need to take the letter of Timothy to heart and to guard ourselves because we're, we're not out of the woodwork here um, just because we start off sold out for Jesus Christ. And we know the story all too well of people we see. I'm sure you could give me examples of people that you know that, were, that you looked up to and were strong Bible teachers and strong Bible believers and had a solid Christian life who now have walked away from the Lord. And you think, what in the world happened? Well, for Timothy is very contemporary to us for those reasons. So let's dive in now and look at the characteristics of these people and the people that Paul was dealing with in Ephesus. The first thing I want you to notice about these guys is that they'd abandoned the truth of Scripture. They, they had abandoned the truth. Look in verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. According to Paul, sound biblical doctrine had two components to it. It had to agree with the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it had to agree with a life of godliness or holy living that lined up with those words. Those are the two components, life and live. Those things had to be congruent. But the fact that these men were advocating a different doctrine means that they had abandoned both the sound words of Jesus Christ and how to live that life out. Those are the two areas in which they walked away from those truths. But what I find interesting here is that when Paul made the claim that the only doctrine he wanted Timothy to follow and adhere to was the sound words of Jesus, he wasn't just referring to the big red letters in your Bible. He was actually referring to his own teachings as well. Remember, throughout the whole letter, he was constantly admonishing Timothy to carry out his own instruction. Like, look at verse 2. After he gives a whole bunch of instruction, he says, teach and preach these principles. Look at verse 17, for example, which will be coming up to in a, in a week or two. He said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. He's expecting Timothy to follow his instruction, the Ephesians to follow his word, but yet he says here, you're to follow, follow the sound words of Jesus. So how do you reconcile this? Who was, who was the church to obey, Jesus or Paul? Well, it's a good question. The answer was both. Both. Because the Lord's, Paul's teaching was the Lord's teaching. Paul's teaching was the Lord's teaching. You remember that Jesus Christ was his teacher. His direct teacher. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 11, this is what Paul says. For I know... Sorry, I, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which is preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is important. I didn't receive it from man. Paul's original teacher was Gamaliel. That's not where the gospel came from. The apostles, he didn't go to the apostles for a number of years. I think it was three years. He didn't even talk to them or see them after he received the gospel message. They didn't teach him it either. Jesus Christ was his teacher. And what was unique about that? How did he teach him? 
in his resurrected state. So the, 11, the other 12 apostles were taught in the flesh. They walked and saw with him and talked with him for, for three years. Paul never had that. His teaching came from Jesus Christ in the resurrected form. And there's different places in the New Testament we see the Lord appearing to Paul to give him specific instruction. I'll give you one example only of, of a few. In Acts 23, verse 11, Paul, there was a plot against Paul. And this is what it says in 23:11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. So he's telling him where he needs to go to do ministry. And this is why we see Paul in places like 1 Corinthians and giving specific instruction to the church. He refers to his own teaching as coming from the Lord because the Lord had taught him. Consider these two verses alone. 1 Corinthians 7.10 But for the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that a wife must not separate from her husband. Or 1 Corinthians 11.23 for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul wasn't there that night. <laughs> he hadn't spoken to the apostles, but he knew these things because the Lord Jesus had taught him in the resurrected form. But perhaps most of the two important texts that I think found in the New Testament to talk about Paul's authority being on equal terms with Christ is found in 2 Peter. And it's important that Peter makes these declarations because Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. But look at this, this, this uh, verse here. Uh, and, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of these things in all his letters. Some things in the letters are hard to understand. Well, we know that. <laughs> Try teaching Romans 9 through 11. Um, uh, Things are that the ignorant unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. Notice what Peter says here. Paul's letters and the rest of the scriptures are on the same playing field. They are the scriptures. This is super important. Now, not just New Testament, Old Testament as well. Check this out. In 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2, he says, Now this, beloved, is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken before, beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So this is super important. He's talking about Jesus' words and the apostles being on the same, same playing field. And back here, he talks about... Um, oh yeah, here it is. The holy prophets, who are they? They're the people in the Old Testament. That's the people in the Old Testament. He's saying the Old Testament... And the commandments of, the, of Jesus and the apostles are all on the same level. This is super important. So the apostles were not making up their own doctrine. They weren't spouting off their own opinions. They were teaching in, in congruity with the entire scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now why is this so important? Why am I going on this tangent? You know, Paul had to defend his apostleship through his whole life. There's different places in the New Testament where he's always on defense about his apostleship. Why? Because everyone knew he didn't uh, walk with the Lord in those three years of ministry. And so he was constantly attacked for his credibility. And so in places like the Galatian letter and different places like Corinthians, he's actually telling people and reminding them of why he's legitimate. But it's contemporary. I was reading Nabil Qureshi's book, um, or listening to the audio book of Janice, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. 
And this guy, Richard Wood, was trying to convince um, Nabil that, that Jesus was the Christ and that and Christianity was the only true religion. And uh, they got to the, the question of Paul, and Nabil went crazy on Richard and said, we can't, this Apostle Paul is a total write-off, he's a complete loser. Like, as Muslims, we can't accept any of his teachings. He's not legitimate. And Richard Wood showed him how Paul is legitimate and changes the mind about Paul. So whether you're a Muslim today, or whether you're 2,000 years ago in the Galatian church, Paul's credibility is questioned. And these, these, these are important for you to know if you're going to defend Paul's legitimacy. If you run into people today that say Paul's got nothing to say, and he did, he's not Jesus Christ, and he didn't you know, think the same way, and all sorts of things. So again, this import, that's why I went, I went on this tangent, because this is legitimate contemporary for today. Well, notice what Paul says about a false teacher who refuses to teach doctrine in line with Christ and himself. In four, verse 4, he says, he's conceited and understands nothing. The mark of a false teacher, first of all, is he abandons truth. The second one is he's arrogant. He's arrogant. The Greek word is really interesting in the, the word conceit or arrogance. It means to be puffed up. To be puffed up. When I was in the gym industry, we had a, a term. It was called ILS. Not ALS, ILS. And it was the guy who had, you know, these are your lats back here, right? It was the guy that had invisible lat syndrome. The guy that walked around the gym like this. And his back was straight as a board. And we'd look for the space, you know, what's the space about, right? He's puffed up. He thinks he's big and he's walking around like he's big with his arms out. And we'd laugh and go, what the heck, guy? Like, until you build a back, you don't have the right to walk like this. That was the, that was the guy with ILS. Gordon Fee says it's a guy who's bloated with self-importance to be puffed up. Now, why would Paul make the claim that anyone who didn't adhere to the doctrines of Scripture and him and Jesus and didn't conform to godliness be conceited and arrogant? Well, because any person that thought that their teaching was superior to the Lord's and his way of life is the biggest expression of arrogance you can get. You're basically saying to God, I'm right, you're wrong. My teaching's correct, yours is wrong. You can trust me, you can't trust the Lord. And you know what? That mark of pride was the, the mark of the devil. That's what that kicked him out of heaven. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. He went to Eve and he said, Did God really say you should not eat? Did he really say that? You don't listen to his teaching. You listen to my teaching. I know better than God. That's the mark of arrogance. That's conceit. And what does Paul say about people like that? Uh, they know nothing. They know nothing. Again, of course, we're talking in the, in the category of spiritual, spiritual realities. <laughs> not, you know, they, not that they don't know anything in their, in their workplace or in their ability to do other tasks. But this is spiritual realities. Because they're contradicting the very word of God and how to live that out. Yes, they may claim to have some spiritual insight, a revelation apart from God's word. It often sounds very appealing and attractive, but in terms of spiritual truth, they know zip. 
But notice another characteristic of people like this. Look at 4 again. He says, when, when they've rejected the word of God, and, and because of their conceit, they have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. The fourth category, third category of false teachers, or anyone else that contradicts the word of God, doesn't have to be just false teachers, is they're often argumentative. They're often argumentative. The word morbid, the word morbid here is, means to be, have a diseased appetite. A diseased appetite. I like the way Gordon Fee puts it in his commentary. He says, because of pride, these people have a sickness, a sickness, a craving for controversial questions and fighting over words. Now what they were fighting over, we don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. And maybe it's a good thing he doesn't tell us because then if we got their issues and we didn't have the same in our church, we'd think, well, we don't, this doesn't apply to us. But we know they were teachers of the law, but according to Paul, they didn't know what they were talking about. So perhaps there were some things they were arguing about over the law. But let me give you a couple examples of contemporary word battles and controversial questions that can occur in our church that are contrary to the sound word to Jesus and uh, to performing to godliness. Someone comes up to you, well, I'll, just t- I'll, say, I'll tell you the word, the word Sabbath. The word Sabbath. Someone comes up to you uh, who joins our church or, in, you know, or takes a position of leadership and says, as Christians, we have to obey the Sabbath. It's the way, the pathway to God and to holiness. But then Colossians 3.16 says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food, drink, festival, new moon, or Sabbath. <laughs> what happens? You've got one person saying that the holiness path is this way because Israel followed it, and as good people, uh, as good Christian people, we have to follow it. What happens? We get into a word battle. It's contrary to Scripture. Nowhere are we to be in the Sabbath in terms of the, the way Israel um, obeyed it. It's not there. Colossians 3 makes it 16. No one has to act as your judge in regards to the Sabbath. I remember Laura, about, uh, was it six months ago, or maybe, yeah, someone there, she sent me a video. When COVID first started back in like February, March, this video came to me from Laura. She says, like, weigh in on this. And it was a video of this woman talking for 40 minutes, approximately, about how um, God had revealed to her and her church that um, this COVID was God's judgment on the world. And... um, it was because we were failing to adhere to many parts of the Jewish law. And uh, so basically there was this, uh, if we get back to the new moons and the festivals and things like Sabbath, that uh, we, there would be a repentance and a revival, and then all of a sudden, and 50 days later after Easter at Pentecost, there was going to be a revival in the world. And I just responded to Laura saying, you know what? Um, I mean, she was really genuine and like, you know, very heartfelt and sweet and, you know, like really convincing by her attitude. And this was one of the Laura said, well, you know, time will tell if this is going to come true. But here's what's interesting. Everything she said is contrary to Scripture because Colossians, I think we actually talked about Colossians 3.16. We're not to observe the new moons and the festivals and, these, and all these regulations. So I said, if it comes true, I'm going to have to reevaluate my understanding of the Bible. But if it doesn't come true, then we know for sure the Scripture is right. 
few, I, uh, about the 50 days passed, and I'd forgotten all about it. And I phoned Laura about, I don't know, maybe a month after the 50 days and said, Hey, Laura, did any word about that? She goes, nothing. Zippo. There wasn't a mass revival in the world amongst Christians because of uh, <laughs> us failing to observe the Jewish way of life. But man, they were in our church. And there was a group of them. Could you imagine how that would affect Genesis House? And we're going to come to the, the fallout that this can occur in, the, in this next list here. How about uh, someone comes up to you and says a controversial question. Why do you eat shellfish? Do you understand that, like, you know, as a, as a Bible-believing person, you're, to go, you're not to eat anything unclean? Really? Where'd you get that? Well, you know, they quote the verse. And then, uh, you know, then they imagine the big ruckus that would cause. My response back was, why, aren't you, why are you wearing mixed clothing when you're asking me that? But again, that would just create division. Again, you can see how easy word battles and controversial questions that aren't sounding the word and sounding doctrine can create, can create havoc. And that's what these false teachers were known for and what they were doing. Now look at what the effects are when things like this occur in the church. In verse uh, 4. Out of these things arrive, arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. The fourth thing that is a mark of a false teacher is that they're abusive and divisive. Abusive and divisive. All of these words here... All of these words here, envy, meaning jealousy and, and uh, strife, which is to be contentious, and abusive language, all of these things are divisive in nature and go uh, directly against what God's desires are for His church and what the Gospel aims to do, which is bring unity to the church family. So God wants unity and, and that the mark to be love, and here we are having envy, strife, and abusing one another and dividing one another because of these types of teaching and focusing on this stuff. But Paul lists five areas in which the church can be affected here. And if you want to talk about these in dialogue, I'm willing to do so. But I just want to focus on one of the five that I think is very applicable to our life today. And that's the word abusive language. Abusive language. To be abusive is, in the Greek is to be slanderous. It's slanderous language. Now, slanderous language is... is is not concerned about the issue at hand. It's not looking to discuss the issue. It wants to basically uh, go after the person and defame them. So slanderous language seeks to attack the person and their character and seeks to injure someone and doesn't care about the issue. Slanderous language is in direct violation to what Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 429. He said, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification to build up the church, but slander doesn't do that, and abusive words don't do that. I like the way uh, um, Eugene Peterson writes it in the message. He says, uh, watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps, each word a gift. And I love that word, a gift. We're to choose words that strengthen and build up someone, and want to discuss an issue with a, with a genuine heart. Abusive language is anything but, and seeks to tear someone down. Now, abusive language does really one, uh, two things. 
It's designed to do two things. Number one, when you abuse someone by going after them, it either, the goal is either to make them conform, and they just get so beaten up, they're just willing to concede and conform to you, or make them shut up. If you're abusive enough, people withdraw and they don't want to fight anymore. And if they do speak out, you punish them so that you make sure they don't ever do it again. And with enough abuse, it can be often a powerful weapon. It can be a powerful weapon. Now, regardless of what you think about Trump, whatever, regardless of what you think about him, the abusive language affected the election. Affected the election in terms of how, how people were speaking about him and how that all went down. When he won the presidency in the USA in 2016, I was listening to the news give a synopsis of the results. I don't remember if it was CNN or NBC or whatever, but they admitted they had misled the American people by making seem that Trump, Trump had no chance of victory. No chance. And that Trump had won election, oh yeah, they made it seem that way. But Trump, they found out, won the election by what? The silent vote. He won because of the silent vote. Here's the question, why were people silent? And why? Because if, if you spoke out in pro-Trump attitude, guess what would happen to you? You would be absolutely lambasted on Facebook, Instagram, uh, the news, everything. You weren't allowed to speak your opinion about him. So you couldn't discuss the issues. If, even if you said, I am supporting him because of the issues he represents, they would defame you and slander you. And so people kept their mouth shut because the abusive language worked in America, but they went to the polls and put Trump on their check mark. <laughs> you know, when the U.S. sneezes, though, Canada catches a cold. It's no different in Canada, is it? If you posted on social media that all lives matter, especially police, what would you get? Someone willing to talk about the issue? Or would they go after you and characterize you as being a hater, a racist, even though I don't think that's a proper term we should use in our Christian circles, for sermons I once preached on? <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, you would be, you'd be accused of all sorts of hate things and that you are not pro-justice. You fail to see what the world sees. And how dare you as a Christian especially not even care about justice. The result then was that we would slowly either conform or be afraid to comment and be very careful in how we speak up. And that's exactly what's happened. We are very careful now because of the abusive language. Now when this environment's in the church, it's absolutely devastating. But this was the environment that the false teachers had created in Ephesus. Because of their interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, and contrary to doctrine of God, contrary to scripture, and they, would, they were conceited and they'd abandoned the truth, they were creating havoc in the church, and there was jealousy, they were abusing one another with words, there was evil suspicions, wondering what people were up to and what their, their malicious intent was, and there was friction between men all in this congregation. So what was motivating guys to be like this anyway? Well, we pick this up in verse 5. 
affluence, money. These men supposed that godliness was a means of gain. They were doing it for the cash. Their motivation was greed. Now we'll be looking at this money topic coming up in the next couple of weeks because it's going to, money's the issue from now to the end of the letter. So we're going to be dealing with finances a little bit here and our approach to money in the next couple of sermons. But really these guys were looking to fleece the sheep, not feed the sheep. They were looking to swindle the sheep, not shepherd the sheep. <laughs> it was all about the almighty dollar. And this was something Paul was sensitive to in his own ministry church. He made a defense on more than one occasion that he was not preaching the gospel in order to become rich. He did that, he did that on numerous occasions in the New Testament. Because that was, that was an accusation against him. And so he'd remind his listeners of how he preached the gospel to him when other people accused him of not being legitimate. And that he was out for the cash. He'd say, do you remember how I functioned amongst you? Do you remember his case in Thessalonica? In chapter 2, he reminded them of this. He said, and I quote, um, We never came with flattering speech, nor with pretext for greed. God is our witness. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel. These, Paul and Timothy, did not ask the Thessalonians for a single dime when they preached the gospel. They, they either would have worked, they were working on the side or receiving funds from the churches, but that's how they provided. And he reminds the Thessalonians, he tells them this because there was an accusation against them that he come in greed. He says, do you remember my conduct amongst you? We were like um, a nursing mother among you. Even in Acts chapter 20, the very first PowerPoint I showed about warning about the shepherds, uh, the being a shepherd of the flock and warning about false teachers in Acts 20, the very first slide. Look what Paul says to the Ephesians uh, here. Oh, oh, I forgot it. Hold on a second. Let me go back to it. I'll read you this. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who are with me. He reminds the Ephesian church years earlier that he didn't covet silver or gold. He ministered with his own hands and that's how he provided for himself. But again, this is a contemporary issue, church. There are people today who still speak from the front and take positions of leadership in order to make a buck. And there are those who are involved with what we know as the prosperity gospel. There are church, and it's not just in the United States. There are people in our society right now, in our back door, that believe that um, the prosperity gospel is a gospel that a promise that God will bless you and that He's there to make you wealthy. And that's the mandate of the church. This will surprise you potentially. And this is not gossip because it's right on their website. <laughs> The Airdrie Church, there's a church in Airdrie, the Victory Church in Airdrie has on their website their four pillars. Here's their four pillar, pillars. The Word, Worship, Relationships, and Wealth. And they quote Deuteronomy 8 to say that wealth is one of God's mandates. Worship, we're all for. The Word, we're all for. Relationships, we're all for. That's what Genesis talks about. But wealth is the, one of their primary things, and that's the Victory Church in Airdrie. Again, I'm not, uh, it's, not, it's not gossip. You can look it up. They're promoting it as part of their mandate. 
the foundation of their teaching, then of course, if you listen to them in the church service, you'd hear at some point that God is here to bless you and make you rich. At some point. But Jesus said, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. You want to follow me? It means that there will be times where you're going to have to rely on other people to provide for you, and it's not going to be a life of ease. <laughs> yeah, there's blessings from going God's way in finances, but it's not an absolute promise that he's going to make you filthy rich and wealthy for it. Especially when he says, it's harder for the rich man to enter the kingdom than the right? Like he makes that claim. Or it's an easier, sorry, it's easier for a camel to go through an iron needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. But again, these are right in our back doors. This is right in our neighborhood. And this is very contemporary. 2,000 years removed, but it's the same issues. Nothing's new under the sun. Okay, what are the lessons we can learn? Number one, Paul's teachings are equally authoritative to the words of Jesus and the rest of Scripture. Why? Well, Christ was his teacher in the resurrected form. Second Peter, on two references, makes it clear that uh, Paul's letters are equal to the rest of Scripture, even though they're hard to understand at times. And he, and he says they're equal to even to the Holy Prophets, which is the Old Testament. We're on the same playing field. Yes, he was unique as an apostle because he, uh, he wasn't present for those three years in the earthly ministry, but he was an apostle nonetheless, and Jesus was his teacher. Again, why does it matter? Because Paul receives flack all the time. All the time that he's not credible. He's not credible. Um, he received it 2,000 years ago. He receives it today. Number two, um, any teaching that contradicts Jesus' doctrine and way of life comes from a place of arrogance. He is conceited, verse 4 says, and understands nothing. Pretty straightforward. Because you're saying, my way is right, your way God is wrong. I know better, you don't. That is a major issue for the Lord, and that was the mark of the devil. Did God really say Eve? Did he really say that? You need to trust me. My way of understanding life and how life works is superior to God. Number three. A warning sign of arrogance is that one will often be argumentative. These people had a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. That stemmed out of their arrogance. I like what Proverbs 13.10 says. And I'm, I'm quoting the New Century Version. It says, Pride only leads to arguments, but those who take advice are wise. Pride leads to arguments, Proverbs says, but those who take advice are wise. And that's what he's saying here in Timothy. Four. Using abusive speech as a means of settling disagreements is a sinful tactic that believers are to completely avoid. Abusive speech doesn't tackle the issue. Abusive speech goes after the person. That's sin. It's designed to shut people up, make them conform. But there's a way to settle disagreements in the church that doesn't involve their, um, um, abusive language. Come alongside a brother or sister and have a, a cordial conversation where you treat the person as 
is equal to you in Christ. Go after the topic and not the issue. Sorry, after the person. Do it with love and gentleness and self-control. And finally, greed can be a motivating factor as to why some choose to be in ministry. <laughs> they suppose here that godliness is a means of gain. And again, uh, there are a lot of people, especially if you're preaching the prosperity gospel, they're going to be telling, they're going to be telling the congregation the way for you to get blessed is to bless me. But it has to be part of the message. Anyway, Timothy, very contemporary, Okotoks and Energetics Church.